The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Let's go ahead and let's pray real quick. Father in heaven, we come now and we, we don't pray this as, as a perfunctory transition into the sermon. We, we pray this because we need your help. We need your help to understand your truth. We need your help to be changed by your truth. We need your help to apply your truth. So pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to understand your word. You would open, you would transform our wills to desire to do your word and you would open our hands to do, to obey your word the rest of this week. Pray you'd open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word for Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I, I will begin this sermon by asking you a, a question and, and that's this, what is the greatest problem in your life right now? How, how would you answer that question? What is the greatest problem in your life? Now, I know for some of you living on a fixed income in this inflationary time, you, you might answer that by saying, you know, my greatest problem right now is it's trying to fill my prescription medicines, trying to, trying to pay the bills that come in the mail, trying to, to buy the groceries, and while still trying have, to have a little bit left over to put gas in the tank. That, that's my greatest problem right now. It's financial. Well, for others, you might answer that your greatest problem right now, it's relational. Uh, maybe your marriage isn't what it used to be. Or maybe your n- marriage has never been what you wished it would be. And maybe your relationship with your child, it, uh, maybe it's strained. Maybe you've been hurt by or maybe you've been the one who has hurt people close to you in your life. M- maybe you're just lonely, Right? Maybe you desire companionship or, or friendship with others, but, but that's just not really happening right now. Some of you might answer that question and say, my greatest problem right now in life, it's relational. And still others, you, you might answer that you are struggling with a particular addiction or, or that you are about to lose or have just lost a loved one. Or, or that you feel so burdened or distressed or depressed by your current circumstances or, or that you have received an unfavorable medical Diagnosis, maybe. What would you say is your greatest problem in life? Or maybe to broaden the question, what would you say are some of the greatest problems in our society and culture today? They abound, don't they? Right? So for some of us, maybe if you're on one side of the spectrum, maybe you would answer that by saying that the root problem of our society today, it's systemic and it's structural in nature. Maybe that's one side of the, the coin. For, for those on the other side of the spectrum, you, you might answer and say that, that the problem in our society and culture today, it's the escalating crime rates, the erosion of sexual ethics, the demise of morality in general, uh, the denial of absolute truth, the abrogation of personal responsibility, the, the spirit of entitlement, etc. Right? We, we can answer the problems of, of our society and our culture in many different ways. But again, while we are certainly faced with many problems in our society and culture and within our own lives as well, these problems listed above and maybe the problems with what you answered, while they are serious and while they produce pain and misery and loneliness and other things in our lives, these are not our greatest problems. 
problem. Our text this morning that Miss Paula just read, it, it is very clear that the most fundamental and the ultimate problem in our life, it's sin. And more specifically, that we are sinners. Sinners separated from God. Or, or maybe to put it another way, our, our greatest problem, it isn't out there. Our greatest problem, it's in here. And so our greatest need in life, it's not some psychology remedy. It's not another self-help regiment. What we need more than anything in this lifetime is to be saved from our sin. And so Paul's purpose for writing Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, it's to show the Ephesians the, the amazing, the radical, and the scandalous free grace of God. And he does that by first reminding them of who they were before Christ. And so from the very onset, our passage this morning, it's very clear. And this is the first point, if you're taking notes, uh, this is the first point. Our passage is very clear about the severity of our sin, the severity of our sin. And many, many people in our world today, and maybe some of you in this room this morning, maybe you don't realize the peril of your spiritual condition. Because you don't understand yet the severity of your sin. Or or maybe to put it another way, many people don't realize their dire spiritual condition because they are unaware of the mortal danger that sin produces within them. Now, now as most of you know, uh, hopefully all of you know by now, Emily and I, we have four beautiful young children and an important, an important part of raising young children is instilling within them a healthy respect and fear for things that can be a threat to their safety, right? And for some reason, and I have no earthly idea why, but electrical outlets are like magnets for young children, for babies and toddlers. It, most recently, we've had to teach little Graceland, and sometimes Isaiah too, we're, we're working on that as well. But we have had to teach Graceland not to play with the outlets, And so when she goes near the outlet, or worse, when she decides to touch the outlet, in a very firm voice, Emily and I, we tell her, no, Gracie, don't do that. And maybe, maybe to illustrate the danger that an outlet can, uh, can, can have on a kid, uh, th- this story happened before I was born, uh, but, I, but I have two older brothers and an older sister. And one day, my brothers, Zach and Clint... Uh, some of you have met my oldest brother, Zach, uh, but they, they were young at the time. They were playing in the back room together while my mom was in the kitchen cooking. And, and then suddenly, while my mom is cooking, my oldest brother, Zach, he comes running into the kitchen and he shouts, Mama, Mama, Clint has the keys in the outlet and he's bouncing up and down. <laughs> Evidently, my brother, Clint, thought the electrical outlet looked like the ignition to a car, and so he stuck the keys into the outlet to start the car. But thankfully, he turned out okay, at least, at least for the most part. Um, but, uh, but, but, while, but, but we're at this stage of life, right, with Graceland, where she still thinks that it, she thinks it's cute and it's funny to play with the outlet. And so after we tell her no, she, she'll just smile and laugh. Why does she respond to us in this way? Well, because she's unaware of the danger that that electrical outlet poses to her. That if she were to stick something into that socket like my brother did, it could prove fatal for her. And so in her ignorance, 
because she's a one-year-old, she makes light of our admonition to her when we say no. She doesn't understand the severity of the danger. Now, I think similarly, we too often today, we don't quite yet understand the severity of the danger of sin. But look at, we look at with me verse 1. How does Paul describe our sinful state before God? And if you're looking for uh, some, some quick encouragement this morning, uh, power through to the last half. But um, this is, this is uh, the reality of our situation. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In your trespasses and sins. And so when I share the gospel with people, a question that I will frequently ask them is this. When you stand before God one day and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What is your answer going to be? And nine times out of ten, the response I get is something like this. Well, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm generally a good person. And I try to help people. I try to be kind to others. I try to do the right thing. And so I hope maybe I'll get to heaven. The, the general consensus today is not that we are wicked and rebellious sinners against a holy God as our passage this morning teaches, but the consensus today is that we're generally good people who occasionally make that mistake. And so what we need then is it's not good news, but we just need some good advice for life. We need 10 steps to help us with positive self-talk, five ways for self-care and three ways to reach our greatest self-potential. It, we, we, we seek after these things because we think we are generally good people who just need some help along the way. But listen, Scripture's description of us, it's not that we are generally good people who occasionally do some wrong. And so we need a little bit of moral reformation here or there. No, Scripture's definition or description of us is quite the opposite. That apart from Christ, we are all spiritually dead people in need of resuscitation. We don't need reformation. We need resuscitation. We are dead to the life of God and we are alive in the life of sin. We are dead in our sin, number one. And then also we see that we are sinners by our doing. Paul says that not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, but look at with me, verse two, what does he say? He says, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. So, so we're not only dead in our trespasses and sins, but that we have intentionally and we have actively walked in these sins. And that in our walking, we have followed the course of this world. And so rather than following God's will for our lives, we have instead followed the immoral ways of living that our world promotes. A, a kind of living that exalts the self. And a kind of living that, that promotes the, the fulfillment of all kinds of indulgences and lusts for us. We have followed the edict of the world. And that is to live for self-glory and for self-fulfillment. And in doing so, the Bible tells us we have fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul teaches here that not only have we followed the world in our sin, he also teaches that we have followed the prince of the power of the air. And that's, that's a long way of putting we, we have followed Satan in our sinning as well. Now, unfortunately, I think, uh, it, how many of you have heard about the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment, it, it was a, a Renaissance movement in the, in the 18th century um, that, that really pushed much of society away from a religious way of thinking into a rationalistic, secular mindset. And unfortunately, I think there have been some residual teachings of the Enlightenment within the church 
today, such that now we as Christians even, we have become functional secularists. And what I mean by that is that sure, we we know what the Bible teaches about the devil and about the supernatural realm, but because we don't want to lose intellectual credibility with the world, uh, we, in essence, dismiss the influence that this spiritual realm has on our lives today. We, we know, okay, yeah, th- this, this all is true, but we kind of deny the reality of it. But Paul doesn't mince words here, does he? he? He says that because we are sinners, we have followed the prince of the power of the air in our lives. Listen, the purpose of Satan is to kill, to steal, and to destroy you. And so while the entertainment industry today tries to sanitize him, they try to normalize him and try to glorify him, make no mistake about it. He is out for blood and he takes great delight in your ruin and in your destruction. And yet because we are like the baby playing with the outlet, because we are unaware to both the severity of our sin and because we dismiss the influence of the supernatural realm in our lives, and because sin has warped our way of thinking, it has made what is entirely irrational to make it seem like it's rational, because of that, we follow right in line with Satan's schemes, like, like sheep to the slaughter. In our sin, we ignorantly and happily follow the ways of this world and the deadly schemes of Satan. The Bible teaches that we are sinners in our doing. You encouraged yet? But, but also, uh, Paul teaches that we are sinners by our desires. Read with me verse 3. Paul says this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So not only are we sinners in our actions, we're also sinners in our affections, in our desires, in our flesh. We are oriented completely selfward. To live for our own selfish ways and to do whatever makes us feel good. And this indeed is the great sinfulness of our sin. That we willfully live for the fulfillment of our own fleshly and sinful desires. That we love our sin. And we do so in absolute defiance to the will of God. And in total disregard for the glory of God. For the one who created us. Listen, apart from Christ, we are sinners in our doing. We are sinners in our desires. We follow the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh, and the ways of the devil. But wait, there's more, Paul tells us. Paul Paul says not only are we sinners in our doing, not only are we sinners in our desires, but we are also sinners in our depravity. Notice the the last half of verse 3, where Paul says this, and that we were by nature Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Bible teaches that because Adam first sinned, and because he was our representative, that in Adam's fall into sin, we fell into sin as well. He was our representative. And I I shared this analogy before in the past, but but like our representatives in the federal government or in the state government, uh, when they vote because they represent us, it's as if we voted as well. Does that make sense? It's because they represent us. Even if we don't like how they voted, it's because they represent us. They are voting in our place. In a sense, we have casted that vote as well. Adam was our representative. And in Adam's fall, we all fell. 
Through Adam's one act of sin, the corruption of sin has entered into the human race and it's infected every single subsequent generation, ours including. And rather than all people being children of God, as most in the world would like to think, Paul, Paul tells us that for those who have not yet received salvation through Jesus Christ, we're not children of God, but what does he say? We're children of what? Of wrath. We are objects of God's just and holy wrath, his righteous punishment for sin. In our sin, we are not only sons of disobedience, walking in stubborn rebellion to God's will, but even more perilously, we're children of wrath destined for an eternal hell. My prayer has been, do do you see the severity of our sin and the mortal danger that our sin produces within us? John Piper, he once answered this question, what is sin, by saying it this way. What is sin? It is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. This is sin. I had a seminary professor once describe it this way. That that if every single one, it's as if every single one of us were wearing orange jumpsuits And standing before the almighty and righteous judge of heaven and earth. And after hearing the evidence of our lives being recounted to us. That we are sinners by our doing. We're sinners by our desires. We're sinners by our depravity. That we are dead in our sins. After the judge hears all of this. What what do you think should be the only right and just verdict ringing from the judge's bench? Guilty. 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 And so we all stand hopelessly condemned in our sins with an eternity of torment awaiting us in hell. And listen, this would indeed be the future destiny for every single one of us if it weren't for these two words. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were sinners by doing, sinners by desire, sinners by depravity, rebelling in against him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that leads us to our second point this morning. And that is the scandal of God's grace. You'll see the sufficiency. I I changed that last minute. The scandal of God's grace. And so after reading these three incredibly despairing and depressing verses, we then come to the two greatest words in all of the Bible. But God. Listen, we were rich in our sin, but God is rich in his mercy. We were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive together with Christ. We have rebelled against God's kingly rule, but God has brokered peace with us through the death of his son. 
We were sons of disobedience, but God has now made us sons and daughters of the king. We were children of wrath and objects of his just and righteous punishment, but God has now made us objects of his unfathomable love and mercy. But God, do you see? By grace, you have been saved. You didn't wake up one day and just say, all right, I guess today I will decide to follow Jesus. Dead people don't wake up and dead people don't make decisions. You don't cooperate with God in your salvation. Your salvation, it wasn't the result of this synergistic, you know, uh, kind of relationship. And out of that came salvation. No, our salvation, church, listen, our salvation is entirely because of the free grace of God. And so all that we are is owing all to his grace. We are saved by grace in Christ for God's glory. But God being rich in mercy, though we have rebelled against him and rejected him as our king, because his mercy toward us is overabounding, because it's without measure, and because it is unlimited, he has made a way to bring us back to himself. Listen, in the gospel, God has said, I know who you are, and I know what you have done, but because of my great love for you, and because I am rich in mercy, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son on your behalf. And so for his sake, I offer forgiveness to you today. And so then to come to me, God says, all you have to do is come to Christ. There was once a story of uh, this this uh, this young girl who young lady who who was caught speeding and because of the egregiousness of her speeding because she was twenty thirty miles over the speeding limit the the, the police officer required that she go before the judge and, and so the judge says how um, tell me what happened and so she explains you know I was carelessly speeding I was uh, I was being reckless and, and 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 all that and he said how how do you plea and, and this young lady. She, she knew the only way that she could plead was by saying, I plead you're guilty, your honor. And, and so what, what typically would have been done, right, is that this young lady would go to the, now to the court clerk and that, and that she would have to go and pay the fine herself. But in this story, what, what does the judge do? Instead of ushering in the next person, he steps off the bench. He gets down from his bench. He walks over to the court clerk. He pulls out his wallet. He takes out his money. And he pays the fine for himself, for this young lady. And you might think, why in the world would this judge do this? Was this just, was this just an act of mercy? Well, it was. But, but what motivated this judge to do that was that this young lady was, in fact, his daughter. And so for the judge to be just, for him to be right, for him to be good, he had to require the punishment for her wrongdoing. But because of his great love for his daughter, he was able to show justice and mercy by paying the debt himself, the debt that his daughter owed. Listen, church, this is the great and astounding and scandalous truth of the gospel. That the son of God stepped off his throne in heaven He became one of his creation. And in the most astounding act of love ever known, the sinless son of God went before the judge's bench wearing our orange jumpsuits. And the judgment we deserved was placed upon him. 
that guilty verdict was read to him in our place. And in our place, he served the sentencing our sin accrued, which was death. Jesus went to the cross to suffer and to endure the punishment of his enemies. And there on the cross, he died for those who were dead in their trespasses. So that through his life, through his death and his resurrection, those who were once dead in their sins might be made alive in him. What love, church. What unspeakable love that God has shown you. That while you and I were still sinners, while we were still hostile enemies of God, Christ died for you. By grace, you have been saved. Not only have we been pardoned by Christ, not only have we been made alive in Christ, our text says, but Paul says that we have also been united to Christ. It gets even better. So let's read verse 6. Where Paul says that, that we have been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he, and he says, verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And, and so in the past, uh, we, we, Emily and I, uh, it, it, we have done some renovation projects on houses. And it's usually started with Emily having a twinkling in her eye and saying, you know what? I, I think I'd like this and this and this changed a little bit, uh, which, which then requires that, I, uh, that uh, my dad and I, uh, I always loop my dad in, but it requires that we uh, have to get to work. And so uh, in our first house, uh, we decided to completely change the floor plan of the house. And we, we physically moved the location of the kitchen. And so with the help and the tutelage of my father, uh, my dad and I had to redo the entire plumbing for the kitchen. Imagine crawling on your back in, in an 18-inch uh, uh, high crawl space trying to get all of this done. And so now you, I'm sure no, many of you have heard the phrase, measure twice, cut once, right? Well, I am an expert at the absolute opposite. Uh, measure, measure once and cut twice. Uh, but fortunately, what you can do with plumbing is that if you run a pipe too short, if you cut a pipe or if a pipe run is too short, you can connect these two pieces of pipe with what's called a coupling. And so the, there are two separate pipe pieces, but with this coupling, these two pieces in reality become one pipe because they have been united by this coupling. And so the water that is in one pipe, it will flow to the other because they are now inseparable. They have been united. The two have become one. Listen, this is what has happened to us when we were saved. We have been inseparably united to Christ. And right now, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. But what does that exactly mean? This, this idea of Jesus being seated on his throne, it carries with it the reality of completion. He has finished his work and he has sat down. He has completed what he came to accomplish. And, and so the victory that Christ has accomplished over sin, over Satan, and over death itself through his cross and resurrection, because we are united to Christ and because we are now seated with him, what does that mean? It means his victory Church is now our victory. His favor with God the Father is now our favor with God the Father. His righteousness is now our righteousness. 
all of his virtues and all that he has accomplished now freely flows to us because we are now in Christ. We have been united to Christ by faith. And so if you'll remember in verse chapter two, Paul does say, yes, the prince of the power of the air. He is indeed at work right now in our world. But listen, church, we are now seated above him because we are at this very moment seated with Christ in his victory. Does, does that make sense? Do you, do you understand what the implication and what it means for us to be united with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places? That what he has done has now been credited to us and we share in his victory. And though we won't yet experience the fullness of our union with Christ in this lifetime, Paul says, right, in verse 7, that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, so do we still wage war against the flesh, against the world, and against the devil in this lifetime? Yes, we do. Do we still struggle with sin? Yes, we do. But there is coming a day. When just as we have been set free from the penalty of sin, and, and as we are being set free from the power of sin, there is coming a day when we will be set free from the very presence of sin itself for all eternity. And, and we'll never again have a lustful thought. We'll, we'll never again have to watch the words we say. And we'll never again have to resist temptation. And not only that, but in the age to come, we will reign with Christ over all the creation. So I just want you to think a little bit with me. Think right now, picture what is your picture and what is your version of the good life? Whatever is coming to your mind right now, listen, it pales in comparison to what God and the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness what God is preparing for you one day. First Corinthians 2, it says this, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In the coming ages, he is going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. If though, right, what's that qualifier there? If. You are in Christ. And if you have received God's free gift of salvation. And that leads us to our final point this morning. And that is the necessity of faith. We have seen the severity of our sin. We have seen the scandal of God's grace. And we now see in verses 8 and 9, the necessity of personal faith. And Paul says this, very well familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This great salvation from God that we have discussed about this morning, it is freely offered to you if you would receive Christ by faith. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved in Christ alone. But... We are saved through personal faith alone in Christ. And so I know this is an often used analogy, but 
Imagine on Christmas morning, right? The, the kids wake up and, and presents upon presents are piled on top of one another underneath the Christmas tree. And, and the gifts have already been paid for, right? Uh, and, and maybe maybe for some of you, the gifts have been paid for by credit card debt. But regardless, the gifts have been paid for. And, and so all the child has to do is receive the gift freely offered to them that morning. The, the, the gift is not given to them because they earned it. Right? It's, this gift is given out of the parent's love for their child. And so the parent picks up that gift from underneath the tree, and he, and he or she holds it out to their child. But in order for the child to, for, in order for that gift to become the child's, what must happen? They must take possession of it. They must lay hold of that gift and make it their own. This salvation from God. It can't be earned by your good efforts or your moral living or your kind deeds because you have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. But God has offered the good news of the gospel to you freely as a gift. This morning, you can be pardoned from your sin. You can be fully forgiven. You can be reconciled to God and restored to a right relationship with him. You can experience the boundless love of God for you. You can be set free from the power of sin in your life. And you can have the assured hope of heaven and eternal life one day. But you must receive this gift through faith. You must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And listen, I know for, for 16 years of my life, this was true. That, that it's not enough to intellectually understand the truths of the gospel, right? And on Wednesday evenings, if you've come, we've talked about the four main headings of the gospel. What is it? God, man, Christ response. And you can repeat that in your sleep all the day long. But if you only understand it intellectually, and if you haven't believed it by faith, if you haven't laid, laid hold of Christ by faith, the Bible says you are still dead in your sins. We are to, amen, we, we, are to, we are to lay hold of this great salvation that God has free, freely offered to us by grace in Christ. We lay hold of it through faith, through asking him to be our savior, our treasure, and our Lord. Now, some of you may be thinking right now that, that this part of the sermon is not applicable to you because you are already saved. But listen, our faith in Christ, it is not a one-time experience. Yes, our conversion, our experience of the new birth, it is a one-time experience. We were dead and God made us alive together with Christ. But as Christians, we are to live continually by faith in the finished work of Christ. And in the present work of the Holy Spirit within us and in the promises of God. Galatians 2.20, Paul said it this way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But then listen to this next part. He says, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The, the, the Christian life, it is a life that is lived by faith in the Son of God. Until that glorious day when our faith will be turned to sight. We, we have seen this morning that the severity of our sin. 
I pray you have seen the scandal of God's grace and the sufficiency of his grace for you personally. And we have seen the necessity of personal faith in Christ Jesus. Now quickly, three points of application. And and the first is this. I, I think this passage leads us to remember who you once were before Christ so that you may comprehend to greater depths God's grace. The, the greatest motivation, the greatest propellant, the greatest catalyst in the Christian life is to remember afresh, to remember daily the reality of the grace of God. For this constant reminder keeps us from pride. We're constantly reminded that anything good within us, again, it's all owing to his grace and that therefore, there but for the grace of God, right, go I. In Luke chapter 18, if you've been doing your Bible reading, you just read through Luke chapter 18. But Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And so what does the Pharisee do? The religious leader of the day, the one who was self-righteous, the one if you looked, if you looked at it, you say, man, that is a man of God. What, what, what does um, Jesus say that the Pharisee does when he prays? He, he, says, he, he says, thank you, God. I, I thank you that I'm not like these tax collectors and like these other sinners. You know, I thank you that I, that I tithe, that I do all of my religious duties. I, I thank you, God, for who I am. And then Jesus contrasts that religious leader, that Pharisee, with who? A tax collector. And Jesus said, this religious leader, he's, he's pumping himself up by his religious duties. And by his religious, religious doing. But this tax collector, all he can do is beat his chest and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which of those two do you think is the true heart of a Christian? It is good for us to remember who we once were. And who we are apart from Christ. So that we remember afresh the grace of God toward us. Secondly, we are to live in the victory of Christ and to renounce living according to the flesh. And uh, let's see, in 10 weeks, we'll get to this in Romans chapter 8. Romans eight thirteen it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so listen, as a reminder, church, sin is not something to play with. And some of you right now in this room, you're playing with sin. It's not something that we play with. We don't give quarter to sin within our heart. Or maybe to put it another way, you don't cuddle a cobra, right? Because it will kill you. The only thing that sin can produce within you is death. But listen, following Christ produces life, abundant life within us. And so the next time you are tempted to sin, remember both the severity of sin and the grace of God. Remember what sin produces and remember who God has made you to be by his grace. Remember who you are in Christ. And so live for and obey the one who has shown you the riches of his mercy. Live in the victory of Christ and renounce living according to the flesh. And then finally, the last application And that is this, a true understanding of spiritual death and spiritual life should lead us to live on mission. Again, a few days ago in our Bible reading, we read through Luke chapter 16. And and in this chapter, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who who lived for himself in this lifetime. And and he also talks about a a, a poor man, Lazarus. And this rich man despised and ignored Lazarus, had no regard for his life. 
This rich man, he lived life to the fullest in all kinds of indulgences. But then Jesus said that the time came and this rich man died and was cast into an eternal torment of hell. And in anguish, this rich man, he looks up and he begs for mercy, but it was too late because Jesus said a great chasm separated this rich man in in hell from heaven. And so since he could not escape the wrath of God's judgment, in this story, the rich man implored Abraham saying, then I beg you, Father, to send someone to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. So I know a lot of times, right, we we can get busy with life and we can forget and not remember the, the, the spiritual reality for many around us and for billions in this world. But listen, brothers and sisters, an eternity of torment in hell. And I say this with no joy, but an eternity of torment in hell awaits those who are still apart from Christ. For those who are sons of disobedience, who are, passage says, for those who are children of wrath. But the good news is that God has sent someone to tell them, to tell them that Jesus saves. He has sent every single one of you to be involved in their life. We are ambassadors of Christ. So the question remains, will we live as his ambassadors? Will we live aware to the spiritual reality and the eternal destiny for those apart from Jesus Christ? So my prayer has been and is that God would fill us with his love, that God would fill us with a sense of urgency, and that God would place within us an unshakable burden and an unceasing longing to go. And that he would do this within me first and foremost. I have been rebuked and I have repented. That he would lead us to go to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, and to the unreached people groups of this world. And to tell them the good news of the gospel. That though they are dead in their sins, God is rich in mercy. And he freely offers salvation to them if they would receive it by faith. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.